What's that you say? And I'll come back again tomorrow. Girl, that's the same old thing you told me yesterday. Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for January 2017. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature for the last month and see what caught our eye. And it was a big month because of the SCCM in the US, so there was a lot of articles uh, presented and subsequently published. So let's start with children. Uh, and in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have tight glycemic control in critically ill children by the Half Pint Study Investigators and the Polisi Network. So if you recall, in 2014, the CHIP investigators randomized 1,370 critically ill children to tight glycemic control, 4 to 7 millimoles per litre, or conventional glycemic control, less than 12 millimoles per litre, and reported that tight control did not improve survival, but was associated with increased hypoglycemia, reduced renal replacement therapy, and reduced hospital length of stay and costs in non-cardiac surgical children. A survey of paediatric intensivists since then has identified wide practice variation, and that supports the need for further evidence. So this 35-centre RCT set out to randomise 1,880 critically ill children who are aged from 2 weeks to 17 years and who are receiving vasoactive support for hypotension or invasive ventilation and had confirmed hyperglycemia, and they excluded patients who'd undergone cardiac surgery or had diabetes. They're randomised to low target, 4.4 to 6, or high target, 8.3 to 10. Um, and clinicians were guided by continuous glucose monitoring and explicit methods for insulin adjustment. The results? The study was stopped uh, by the Data Safety Committee at 713, so less than half of the uh, anticipated enrolment, due to the low likelihood of benefit and the possibility of harm. So the primary outcome, ICU free days to day 28, was 19.4 in both groups, so no difference. Patients did have a difference in insulin and delivered and blood sugar, so the median time-weighted average glucose was 6.1 in the low group and 6.8 in the high group. That's uh, statistically significant. Whether or not that's clinically significant is debatable. The insulin dose was significantly different, a median dose of 0.74 compared to 0.01 units per kilo per day. Now, patients in the lower group had higher rates of healthcare-associated infections, 3.4 compared to 1.1%, and that was significant at 0.04, as well as higher rates of severe hypoglycemia, 5.2 versus 2%. And we would expect there to be more severe hypoglycemia in the type or lower glycemic range group. There were no differences in mortality, severity of organ dysfunction, or the number of ventilator-free days. So overall, critically ill children with hyperglycemia did not benefit from a lower glycemic target range as compared to a higher range. And perhaps there was a hint of increased risk uh, due to healthcare-associated infections. It's a pity it was stopped so early, and I wonder if that uh, represents the end of tight glycemic studies in children. The next study, sticking with children, uh, in the New England Journal is by the Thapka trial investigators, Therapeutic Hypothermia After In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest in Children. 
current guidelines recommend either hypothermia or normothermia or targeted temperature for temperature management after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in adults and children. To date, RCTs of therapeutic hypothermia versus therapeutic normothermia for in-hospital cardiac arrest haven't been described in adults or children. The characteristics of in-hospital cardiac arrest in children are different in terms of etiology, rhythm, response time, resuscitation skills of responders, and cause of death. This study, the SAPCA trial, randomized 329 children who were 2 days to 18 years of age from 37 hospitals with in-hospital cardiac arrest, and that was greater than 2 minutes of chest compression, who had retain of, return of spontaneous circulation and remained dependent on mechanical ventilation. They were randomized to 33 degrees Celsius versus 36.8 degrees Celsius for 120 hours. After this, patients were rewarmed over 16 hours to 36.8. Now, the trial was terminated because of futility after 329 patients had undergone randomization. So what did they find? Well, the primary outcome was survival with a favorable neurobehavioral outcome at 12 months of follow-up. And this was defined as an age-corrected standard VABS score of 70 or higher. So amongst the 257 patients who had a VABS2 score of at least 70 before cardiac arrest and who could be evaluated, the rate of the primary outcome did not differ significantly between the hypothermia group and the normothermia group, 36 versus 39%, relative risk of 0.92, confidence intervals of 0.67 to 1.27. Among the 317 patients who could be evaluated for change in neurobehavioral function, the change in VABS2 score from baseline to 12 months did not differ significantly between the groups. And among the 327 patients who could be evaluated for one-year survival, the rate of one-year survival did not differ significantly between the hypothermia and the normothermia group, 49 versus 46%. The incidence of blood product use, infection and serious adverse events, as well as 28-day mortality, did not differ significantly between the groups. So, among comatose children who survived in-hospital cardiac arrest, therapeutic hypothermia, as compared with therapeutic normothermia, did not confer a significant benefit in survival with a favourable functional outcome at one year. Where to from here? Modification of exclusion and inclusion criteria? Addition of neuroprotective therapies? Who knows? Let's move on to adults and JAMA, where we have association between tracheal intubation during adult in-hospital cardiac arrest and survival. So the optimal approach to airway management for in-hospital cardiac arrest remains unknown and tracheal intubation has been de-emphasized in guidelines. This study retrospectively analyzed data from the prospectively collected Get With the Guidelines Registry in the US for in-hospital cardiac arrest. A total of 108,078 adult patients in 668 hospitals with in-hospital cardiac arrest, excluding those with invasive airway at time of arrest, were included time to tracheal intubation was recorded and cardiac arrest defined as ended at return of spontaneous circulation or termination of resuscitation. 
Analysis was performed in a similar fashion to the recent paediatric resus paper, that is, a time-dependent by-minute propensity matching of non-intubated patients with intubated patients. They also analysed for interaction between intubation as a yes-no and time to intubation, linear and categorical. Sensitivity analyses were performed to account for missing data excluding patients who received ECMO and uh, for those who required greater than two minutes of CPR. Finally, various subgroup analyses were performed. They report the median age was 69 years and 22.4% survived to hospital discharge. So when we get to the analysis, 71,600 patients, that's about 66%, who were intubated within the first 15 minutes were matched of, of this group, 43,000, so 60% of the 70,000, were matched to a patient not intubated in the same minute. Survival was lower among patients who were intubated compared to those not intubated, 16.3 versus 19.4%, relative risk of 0.84, confidence intervals of 0.81 to 0.87. The proportion of patients with return of spontaneous circulation was lower among intubated patients than those not intubated, 58 versus 59%. Good functional outcome was lower among intubated patients than those not intubated, 10.6 versus 13.6%. And intubation was not associated with improved outcomes in pre-specified subgroup analyses. So overall, this study reports no survival or neurological advantage of tracheal intubation in the first minute of CPR compared to any other minute in the first 15 in adult in-hospital cardiac arrest. Of course it is retrospective and despite propensity matching there may be unaccounted confounders. Still, early tracheal intubation for adult in-hospital cardiac arrest doesn't seem clearly advantageous. This study may generate an RCT but as the accompanying editorial discusses it would be very difficult to design. Let's stay with JAMA. Uh, we have another intubation paper, but a different angle. This is video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy on successful first-pass orotracheal intubation among ICU patients, the CRICS group. So last year we had a parallel group pragmatic trial of video compared with direct laryngoscopy for adults undergoing endotracheal intubation in the ICU. And that told us that fellows with an average history of about 50 intubations get better views with VL than DL. But there was no difference in intubation success or time to intubation. In simple terms, VL helped us see where we are going, but it just didn't get us there any faster. So does it help inexperienced operators training and interaction with supervisors the effects of all those we don't know? This prospective, non-blinded, open-label, two-parallel group RCT randomised 371 adults requiring intubation in seven French ICUs to VL or DL. The primary outcome measure was the proportion of patients with successful first-pass orotracheal intubation, defined as normal-appearing end-tidal CO2 waveform over four or more breathing cycles, and it did not 
differ significantly between the groups. So VL was 67.7%, DL 70.3%, absolute difference minus 2.5%, 95% confidence intervals minus 11.9 to plus 6.9, p-value 0.6. The proportion of first attempt intubations performed by non-experts, so primarily residents, did not differ between the groups, 84.4 for VL, 83.2 for DL. No patient required alternative intubation or oxygenation methods. The median time to successful intubation was 3 minutes for both VL and DL. VL was not associated with life-threatening complications, 13.3%, DL 9.5%. That wasn't significant. In post-hoc analysis, VL was associated with severe life-threatening complications, 9.5% versus DL 2.8% compared to direct laryngoscopy, but not with mild to moderate life-threatening complications, 54 versus 7.7%. So, overall, VL did not improve first-pass orotracheal intubation rates and was associated with a higher rate of severe life-threatening complications among patients in the ICU requiring intubation. The authors suggest further studies are needed to assess the comparative effectiveness of these two strategies in different clinical settings and among operators with diverse skill levels. Again, VL may help us see where we are going, but it just doesn't get us there any faster or, it seems, any safer. Fascinating stuff. Let's go to the JAMA internal medicine uh, and we have the association of intensive care unit patient to intensivist ratios with hospital mortality. So that's the PIR, the patient to intensivist ratio. This retrospective cohort analysis of adult patients admitted to ICU staffed by a single intensivist during daytime hours in the UK from 2010 to 2013 attempts to provide answers to what is the ideal PIR using hospital mortality as the outcome. The PIR for each patient was the number of patients cared for by the intensivist each day averaged over the patient's stay. They report that the median PIR was 8.5 and it ranged from 2 to 19 for about 50,000 patients in about 100 ICUs. And they had a median of 10 beds in these single intensivist ICUs. The association between PIR and hospital mortality was U-shaped with a reduction in the odds of mortality peaking at a PIR of 7.5 and no additional association seen above a ratio of 12. A PIR of less than or greater than 7.5 was associated with higher hospital and ICU mortality. The absolute effect sizes of exposure to intensivists who deviated from 7.5 in either direction were non-trivial, perhaps as much as 4 to 7 percentage point absolute increase in mortality. The attached editorial discusses the implications of this study. How many patients can be safely taken care of by single intensivist based on the ICU census at that specific time? This study is restricted to single intensivist ICU, so the increased risk seen at low PIR, query the underworked unit intensivist, 
and the lack of increase at greater than 12 other factors such as different resources in busy units require further exploration and may not be applicable to multi-intensivist ICUs. In addition, this study is conducted in the UK and doesn't explore 24-hour versus on-call models. But it does raise interesting and provocative issues and increases the information and the need for us to find and understand the sweet spot of intensivist staffing models. So next we've got two studies in uh, JAMA that look at the SOFA score, SERS criteria and the QSOFA score, these new definitions that came out last year. So the first is prognostic accuracy of the SOFA score, SERS criteria and QSOFA score for in-hospital mortality among adults with suspected infection admitted to the ICU and this comes from the ANZICS core database. So in 2016 sepsis was redefined as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. In addition, members of the third international consensus definitions for sepsis and septic shock, the sepsis 3 task force, proposed QSOFA, the quick sequential sepsis-related organ failure assessment, a score using simple clinical criteria to assist bedside clinicians to identify patients with sepsis or who are likely to develop it. So if you recall, the final QSOFA model included three parameters, a GCS of less than 15, you got one point, systolic blood pressure of less than 100 millimeters of mercury, one point, and a respiratory rate of greater than 22 breaths per minute, one point. The score was tested using several large hospital databases and specifically it was tested for predictive validity, that is to identify patients with excess mortality above baseline risk for infection, that is attributable to sepsis. It performed better than other scores, like the SOFA score, for patients outside of ICU but was less accurate for patients already in ICU. So this retrospective analysis evaluated the predictive validity of QSOFA in the large ANZICS adult patient database of admissions to adult general ICUs and they reported in 185,000 patients with an infection related diagnosis admitted to 182 ICUs over a 16 year period that the in-hospital mortality was 18.7%. The predictive validity of QSOFA in the ICU was inferior to the full SOFA. The SOFA score increased by two or more points in 90% of the patients and 87% manifested two or more SERS criteria while 54% had a QSOFA score of two or more. The area under the receiver operating curve analysis reported SOFA demonstrated significantly greater prognostic accuracy for in-hospital mortality than SERS or QSOFA. So overall this study is consistent with the initial findings reported for QSOFA, that is, it does not perform as well as a SOFA score in the ICU for prediction of hospital mortality in severe sepsis. So that takes us to the second study in JAMA, prognostic accuracy of sepsis 3 criteria for in-hospital mortality among patients with suspected infection presenting to the ED and this is from the French Society of Emergency Medicine Collaborator Group. 
This prospective study reports the predictive validity of QSOFA among 879 patients with suspected infection presenting to EDs in France, Switzerland, Spain and Belgium. And they report that in-hospital mortality was 8%, 3% for patients with a QSOFA of less than 2 and 24% for a QSOFA greater than or equal to 2 the predictive validity of QSOFA was similar to full SOFA, and the addition of lactate did not improve predictive validity. QSOFA performed better than the SERS criteria and severe sepsis to predict in-hospital mortality. And the hazards ratio of QSOFA score for death was 6.2 for severe sepsis. Overall, QSOFA performed well for prediction of mortality in patients presenting to ED with suspected infection. Again, this confirms the initial sepsis 3 findings. So both these studies seem to be telling us that QSOFA is a good predictive tool outside of ICU, but not as good as SOFA for patients inside the ICU. Okay, sticking with JAMA again, we have associations of antifungal treatments with prevention of fungal infection in critically ill patients without neutropenia. So invasive fungal infections, IFIs, are important causes of morbidity and mortality among critically ill patients. This JAMA clinical evidence synopsis summarizes an update of a Cochrane review regarding the association of antifungal drugs administered before definitive diagnosis of IFI compared with placebo on all-cause mortality in non-neutropenic critically ill patients. So they report on 2,760 patients in 22 RCTs. Most often the drugs used were azoles, so fluconazole or ketoconazole, but echinocandins, um, nystatin and amphotericin B were also studied. In terms of all-cause mortality, there was moderate grade evidence that administration of antifungal drugs before definitive diagnosis of IFI was not associated with significant reduction of all-cause mortality, which was 23% for antifungal versus 24.4% for placebo or no treatment, a relative risk of 0.93, 95% confidence intervals of 0.79 to 1.09, p-value of 0.36. In terms of the incidence of invasive fungal infection, there was low-grade evidence that administration of antifungal drugs before definitive diagnosis of IFI was associated with a significant reduction of risk of IFI, 5.6% for the antifungal group versus 10% for the placebo and non-treatment group, relative risk 0.57, and the 95% confidence intervals were 0.39 to 0.83, p-value 0.003. Current European and US guidelines support the use of antifungals before IFI in certain high-risk groups of critically ill patients. The findings of this study only partially support those recommendations and there is clearly more work to do in the form of high-quality RCTs to look at certain groups of patients, specific drugs and specific outcomes. So it seems we don't know everything we need to know about invasive fungal infections and their prevention and treatment in non-immunosuppressed patients. Finally, 
we have an article in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Experiences and Expressions of Spirituality at the End of Life in the ICU. This qualitative study, conducted in a 21-bed medical surgical ICU in Canada, reports the findings of 208 semi-structured interviews conducted with the family and physicians caring for 70 dying patients. The program is called the Three Wishes Project, and the overall aim of which is to bring peace to the final days of a patient's life and to ease the dying process. Uh, it's really worth a read. It's a very extensive article. Um, there are a lot of quotes and comments, and it, it, it's, it's an interesting journey through the uh, interview process. As the authors point out, spirituality refers to the way individuals seek and express meaning and purpose and how they experience connectedness to the moment, self, others, nature, and the significant or sacred. The WHO identifies spirituality as a core dimension of health which may sustain people at times of distress. Critical illness raises common existential questions about meaning, purpose, relationships and destiny. However, the ICU is not a setting where these questions are typically addressed. An ATS policy statement cites the identification of spiritual needs as a core competency for critical care practitioners and spiritual support is one of seven end-of-life care quality domains in the ICU. It seems, not surprisingly, that dying in ICU is a profoundly spiritual experience in how we interact, what we do, as families and clinicians, for those who identify as religious or secular. The Three Wishes Project helps to realise the spectrum and impact of spirituality for those dying, living and working in the ICU. Well, that's it for Critique, January 2017. Come to the website, have a look around, otherwise I'll see you in a month. What's that you say? And I'll come back again tomorrow. Girl, that's the same old thing.